I was down in uh, Donnybrook last year and there was a terrible clash of heads. Two schoolboys, both concussed, and they're sitting in the stand, you know, be, and because the schools probably didn't have enough backup staff, they're sitting there and they're shaking and they're on their own. And I asked one of them, I said, what happened to you? And he said, I think I'm concussed. Joe presents House of Rugby, together with Bank of Ireland, proud supporter of the four Irish provinces. Hello and welcome back to House of Rugby, together with Bank of Ireland. I'm Gregor Shea and of course my good friend Lindsay Peet is here as always. Happy Monday, how are you? Happy Monday. I'm sore. Are you sore? Are you playing yesterday? We had a semi-final against this man's club, old club, old Belvedere. We beat them 34-19 after being 19-5 down. Oh no way, congrats, yeah. a comeback like Thanks Leinster. Yeah. Uh, well you mentioned there you have a lovely gentleman sitting beside you, Mr Owen Doyle, who is former test referee and former IRFU director of referees. You have a well-established career behind you, sir, and it's a pleasure to have you in. Thank you very much. Uh, it's lovely to meet you both. And Lindsay, thank you for beating my old club on Saturday. You're welcome, I told you to get <laughs> that in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a referee mistake. Actually, do you know what? I could, we were chatting before we went on air and I was commending actually the referee because I, as a player, I would have mentioned Joy and Helen and you love a referee who's, you know, has clarity and chats to you and gives you the benefit of And like you said, isn't the centre point of a match and he wasn't. He was quite consistent for both sides. So yeah. I have to say uh, a big shout out to the referee. You're changing Sanders. your tone now. A few weeks ago you were saying you hate refs. Well, yeah, who was I saying I hated actually? To me. No yeah. money, Mason. Oh, I kind of, I tell you why, because I'm one of those bald kids who's always put in the corner by referees. Don't say that in front no, of Oh no. A couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, I think you lost, you lost your first game, and you were like, "I'm not going to blame the I ref." I did actually. But we lost to Rock. Yes, I did say that. I hold up my hand. Yeah. Well, Hopefully, be another good referee and show on next Friday, <laughs> seven thirty, TG Carr, the AIL final. Well, you know, when I started yeah. refereeing, you know, I I was of the opinion, like most people were, that referees' parents had met once, but only very briefly. <laughs> uh, and then I met a few through my father's connections, and I realised these are actually normal normal human beings. So that's when I went into it. Uh, I was an unusual guy because I was probably younger than most of the players, because I started when I was 20. Wow. wow. So when you're refereeing some of the old hoary guys, like, say, Ray McLaughlin from Black Rock, who played in the front row, it was really difficult. Yeah, uh, but when you got over that hump, they were actually quite happy that um, here was somebody who might be no good, but at least he can keep up with the play. And if you're a sound person, that goes a long way as well. Yeah, you're, you're probably fitter than most of the players if you're well, a twenty-year-old. Probably, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's amazing. It's amazing. Well, we're going to ask you all about um, where refs are at the moment in world rugby because your opinion holds so much weight from your careers. But we'll get that later. And also later on in the episode, we have a big interview with John Porch who's the winger for Connacht. If you've been living under a rock, he's one of the best uh, wingers in the URC at the moment. So we have a big chat with him. Our very own uh, producer, Pat, was chatting to him. Um, but we'll talk about that later because we want to talk about the big Leinster game. Yes, Lindsay. we do. They are just unstoppable. So they won 38-29 against Ulster. Ulster threw it away. They were 22-3 up and they ended up losing with the 35 unanswered points. They were outstanding Leinster they, they were Lindsay? and I listened to Ryan Baird after the with, one, on Leinster TV's I think one of their his interviews and he just kind of said that the their mental resilience and knowing that their game plan is going to work and every fella knows in that team that they are capable of doing this now Ulster will be shooting like if I was an Ulster fan this morning I'd be pretty you know I'd be pretty good at it now to be honest because I think discipline killed them and they tried to, I don't know, they just went away from their game plan. They were sublime in the first half. 
Do you know what I mean? Uh, Ethan and McElroy's try uh, off Stuart Moore's a turnover. Like they did some really, really good stuff. Um, Leinster were killed with Keane Healy's red card after 20 minutes. So they had no right really to win the game and they were mm. absolutely sublime. They never looked like they were going to lose that game. Again, they just had a deep bench. Everyone came in, knew their role. I thought Nick McCarthy, Gibson Park was a bit out of sorts. He had a couple of knock-ons and then Nick McCarthy came on. I thought he was absolutely excellent. So, um, hats off to Leinster we kind of we want to know their secret really don't we <laughs> yeah well, I presume you were watching it Owen and the red card for Keane Healy after 20 minutes I thought it would have been a very good advantage for Ulster to go on and win it but they couldn't do it even against 14 men no I mean you have to wonder where these red cards are going to stop I mean it's nearly a compulsory red card in every match now and they've got to sort out the tackling they've got to sort out the breakdown um, and that's a big job for world rugby um, at the same time, all they're talking about is bringing in shot clocks for kicks at goal. I mean, they've a lot more serious stuff to deal with. Yeah. Um, I thought Leo Cullen, Cullen pulled off a masterstroke by pulling off the wing. Yeah, he pulled Jimmy off Jimmy O'Brien. He, yeah. he pulled off Jimmy O'Brien and he put on another prop uh, for Kean Healy. And I think that that was absolutely critical uh, to winning the game. Because if they played with seven forwards, I don't think they would have won it. Mm. Um, whether it should be allowed <laughs> or not is another matter. Uh, but I thought it was really clever. But Leo is a magnificent uh, director of rugby down there. Yeah, Can I ask you about the red card? Do you think it was a red card? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think when players take a risk um, and it's between yellow and red, and if it lands on red, and sometimes you could say, yeah, it could have landed on yellow. Well, it's not anybody's fault but their own. I mean, you're only one click away if it's yellow from red. Now, what I don't like is a red card when it actually should just be a penalty. Yeah. Um, and some of these are completely misread. I mean, you have the TMO, you have the referee, you have the assistant referees who don't really assist very much except to point up to the sky <laughs> going out to the TMO because I'm not getting involved either. And maybe if I was in that role, I wouldn't. But why on earth they can't get it right 100% of the time, I do not know. Uh, and we've seen other ones where they say, oh, there's been a change of direction. Uh, and it's been a minuscule change of direction by the ball carrier. And still he's taken out by a heavy shoulder to the head. I mean, the guy going in to do that is targeting. So he's going, no matter what change of direction is, that's what his intent is, even though they call it reckless and they never say it's deliberate. So the sanctions for players uh, aren't enough. They get six weeks, because that's mid-range. Mid then they get 50% mandatory off for saying they're sorry. I've stood outside uh, rooms where these hearings are head, mm -hmm. held, and the guys go in with these shirt and tie on the only tie they wear in the whole of their career <laughs> and you know they're nearly in tears and they go in they're full of remorse I texted so and so and I said how oh, sorry and he texted me back saying don't worry and they get 50% off for that just for saying sorry yeah wow. then the next thing is which is a new thing uh, that if they agree to attend a special um, what they call coach oh, intervention course. coach intervention <clears throat> technique which is basically a tackling lesson and they get another week off so now they're down to two weeks uh, so two weeks is a rest period. Uh, Munster will play Toulouse at home and it's going to be a cracking match. And Anton Dupont, very important to Toulouse, is suddenly playing. He got four weeks the other day, uh, quite rightly. And now suddenly it's two weeks because he appealed. So he's back See, in I time. don't think that should have because Colby landed on his head. So if you're going up for ball, even though Dupont had his eyes on the ball, I mean, that could have been a serious injury. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, sure, it doesn't seem to come into it then. 
Do you no. know what, you know, the actual act or what could have happened or do you know what I mean? He had his eyes on the ball, but he was coming from a position and at a height that he had no chance of ever getting it. Mm. And as far as I remember, a year or so ago, now maybe it just become flavour of the month that people have forgotten all about. It seemed to me that that didn't matter. If you weren't at a height that you could compete and you tipped somebody over, you were seriously to blame. Now, it was o- only Cheslin Colby's God that saved him mm. from a catastrophic injury. Mm. Do we have to wait for that to happen? We brought it up on the show, haven't we? Like weeks and weeks, we're talking about concussion and serious injury and obviously Doddy Weir now recently, obviously no connection, but like there is those, um, you know, neuromuscular diseases that are now with scientific research being attributed to just collisions in rugby. Do you know what I mean? And obviously it's everyone's collective to try and protect ourselves. But like the indiscipline in that game as well, like Ulster had two yellow cards. Do you know what I mean? So it seems to be consistent throughout the game, really. Um, and we probably will go into it a little bit later on. Yeah, but, um, I think I think rugby's coming to a boiling point now where lads and ladies are getting mm. so big and so strong and you're kind of alluding to it there, Owen, that we keep getting these red cards and guys are just about getting away with it. We haven't had any constra- con- uh, catastrophic injuries yet. Yeah. But... Is that what it's going to take for them to change the laws? Yeah, but you've nearly had it. I mean, look at all the retirements from dementia. Yeah. Uh, look at um, the former uh, Welsh captain. Ryan, Ryan Jones. Uh, well, it was Ryan Jones before that. There was, um, oh, what's his name that Rodan sent off in the semi-final of the World Cup. He's had to retire from injury. And it's happening. And yet it's suddenly forgotten. Mm. Five Welsh kids in what they call their espoirs, their hopefuls, which would be their academy, two years ago, they died from uh, injuries. Uh, on the pitch they're dead and suddenly that's all forgotten and swept under the carpet mm. until it happens again it's it's really intriguing I honestly believe that if we don't sort it out rugby's going to become like the NFL millions watching and a few playing uh, it's like and I made the analogy the other day it's like the old Colosseum in Rome hordes and hordes of people turning up to watch this gladiatorial sport but not too many are going to want to join in no. yeah if it's professional and you're looked after, that's fine. I was down in uh, Donnybrook uh, last year and there was a terrible clash of heads. Two schoolboys, both concussed. And they're sitting in the stand, you know, be, and because the schools probably didn't have enough backup staff, they're sitting there and they're shaking and they're on their own. And I asked one of them, I said, what happened to you? And he said, I think I'm concussed. And he's just looking at me this blank stare. Uh, and parents aren't going to put up with that. Hmm. I mean, they're really not. No, well, it's it's, it's very scary for parents to see that. Huge, yeah. huge duty of care in school in general. Do you know yeah. when they're under your remit? So to have, if you're going, and that's the thing, isn't it? We've money in some of the schools, especially in Dublin, for full time coaches, S and C coaches for full time gyms. Surely the duty of care and to have a physio and a, and a medic there is essential now. Like, surely that has to come under the remit that if you're playing at a certain well. Obviously, we're talking about money, unfortunately, and it shouldn't be compromised depend- no matter what the level you're playing. But surely that should come in under your insurance or as part of the club or the schools that you have to have someone there, even yeah. just to govern the game and all teams playing that. Yeah, day. absolutely. But you see a doctor taking one of these kids off and then there's something else happens on the pitch and the doctor's called out mm-hmm. again and the kid on the sideline is obviously now becomes into he's got to wait. Mm. Uh, now, a lot of schools do deal with it very well, but they're putting massive amount of it in, in it of money into rugby and schools rugby now at that level in the school senior cup is a facsimile of the internationals they have their computers they have their delayed cameras they have the whole shooting match they have their gyms they have and wonderful but when you get two teams who are equal um, and they both are investing 
It's actually just like an international rugby match, except the guys are slightly smaller. Yeah. If you get one of the big teams playing against one of the smaller teams who don't invest so much, the parents of the smaller team are watching through their fingers. And the other parents are having a great time because their team are scoring tries and they're milling the opposition. And of course, why not? They're not conscious of the other side of the coin. Mm. Uh, and I can see, like in New Zealand, there's been a massive fall off uh, in boys playing rugby. Mm. And New Zealand did a survey of their own and they finished in 2019, I think, and they had like nearly a 20% fall off. And when they asked the kids why, they're afraid of getting concussed mm-hmm. and they're afraid of being beaten up. They just had it. So they've turned to basketball, wow. the, the main uh, winner. Yeah. That. So don't they in New Zealand, they under a certain age that they play based off their size as well? Yeah. They, and I'm not sure how that's going, but definitely they did. But there are other societal reasons why that isn't going to work. I mean, if I'm in sixth year in school and I'm a small guy, do I have to go off and play with the 13-year-old? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and vice versa. Who is this little so-and-so who's coming yeah. up uh, instead of my friend, you know? Yeah. And then there are some great small players. Like Faf de Klerk, Colby, and the other South African winger who was just a magnificent player. Aaron Yeah, but yeah. they're unusual. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think Owen needs to be done to save the sport? I've heard through the grapevine, someone high up enough in world rugby, that there's, it's been proposed that they're changing the rules for younger ages to make it safer. And I don't know if that's going to come in now, but that's been proposed. Obviously, we'll say it the same rules for professional mm. level, but underage, they might change the rules. I presume in the contact zone, they might uh, make it a bit more safer. But what do you think yourself needs yeah, to be Yeah, I haven't seen the detail of any of that. Yeah. The problem with it is that everybody wants to emulate their heroes. So mm. if you see Ireland playing in a certain way and then you're at school and you're told mm. you can't do X, Y or Z uh, because it actually becomes a different sport. I think overall they've got to look at serious things like the, the breakdown, the clearing out of the breakdown. Uh, where did that come from? You used to have to join a ruck, which meant you bound on and you pushed and then they were coming in a bit faster. And now you get guys trying to clear out people who are in impossible positions. Like Bundy, a key against yeah. uh, Snatler the other week. Exactly. Yeah. And the yeah. answer the player will give you is, I had no other option. Well, if you have no other option, you can't do anything. Yeah. So just don't clear. Yeah, because like uh, there was, I even see it in my own games and, um, you know, you can see players over a rook, you know, and they're they're in a jackal position. And next fall, someone comes in reckless. They're just absolutely like a bullet. Like they've no target, they've no nothing. They just launch themselves. And I'm like, if you hit that person the wrong way, you know, you're either going to break their neck or snap their back or like. So, it, is that going to be a rule where right if they're sealed off and you don't see chest, they don't go? Because it was the same thing with the with the Bundy. Like he had no way he was going to clear mm. Sonata. Like he was so down. There was no surface area for him to even target unless he rolled from his hips and you don't we're obviously trying to eliminate the crocodile roll as well so yeah I think the breakdown is an area where people can be headless and you know you then they're going up against people who are really in a compromising position you know just trying to play with the rules and turn over a ball which they're entitled to do they seem to they noticed that a few years ago with the scrum where they stopped allowing lads to get momentum to go into the scrum now you have to do whatever it is crouch yeah. touch point engage and only pull in like it's only a couple of centimetres between the props so they've noticed that be, that's going to reduce injury in the front row How, and it does, does that that's happen? a big thing like referees will bring the front row yeah. in consistently yeah. and they'll, all they're asking for now is stability and we wait for the calls and they won't you know they won't continue on with their sequence until they get you know step one we've achieved and that's c- clear because if you a, if you collapse a scrum when everyone's in it, like, again, you're going to get serious neck injuries. Like, you've, 
you know, front row, you've like your own five behind you and then the other opposition's eight coming in. If you're in a wrong position, like your goose. So yeah. there is great, you know, I have to say consistency around the scrum. Um, sometimes now I find it's a bit slow when we're when we've two good teams, the sequences, because you're trying to hold your weight. You're really trying to promote that. But yeah. Um, other than that, like that's one big area that we've seen the changes, mm. and I think maybe it's you could good. bring a rule similar to that into the breakdown where you can't be sprinting in from how far away. Yeah, like, true. Maybe like Peter Steps it was the other day, where a guy came in and just hit him, ended up breaking your man's cheekbone. Yes. Maybe you have to come in and, as you're saying, just bind and and drive in at a slower build of aggression. Yeah, what do I, you think? I think Lindsay, would you agree that the common thing of all these people who 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 hit and do damage like that is that they're late. Yeah, they've missed their opportunity. They've missed their opportunity. So they say, I've got to do something. Yeah. And they do that. Hmm. Um, I mean, you mentioned the scrum. I mean, that's another bone of contention. Uh, and again, uh, it's the coaches who not unreasonably have decided that the front rows should have their their legs at an angle of 120 degrees because that gives them the better shove. Hmm. But front rows shouldn't be shoving. The We're laws, just the angles. The laws of the game, exactly, mm. state that each member of the front row must be supporting their own body weight on at least one leg. Now, if you do that, you immediately make the whole thing more stable. You don't have the referees appealing for balance because basically you're putting one ton up against each other. Their legs are right behind them. And when that goes wrong, it's going to somebody's, somebody's going to pancake or somebody's going to curl over. And you, you, you get the props doing their normal job and the thing is never ever stable it nope. looks stable but it's not stable I mean if I took away last Saturday the opposition Belvedere pack mm. I suggest the railway union pack would have fallen down yeah because actually the biggest thing is our the our back for me the back row and second row actually holding me so you're kind of you are holding your own weight but they're kind of holding you as well yeah. because what we're trying to do is load our weight to some extent now I thankfully through my experience with international you're kind mm. of using your opposition but again you're relying on both packs to lean on each other nearly to for stability yeah. rather than holding your own body weight so mm. we are as players trying to we're always trying to manipulate unfortunately the laws for our of own course, benefit yeah. but uh, like actually there's been so many synthesis injuries which is kind of what you're alluding to like even yeah. that collapse on your ankle or um like you're even relying on my second row sometimes will be on my hamstring. I'm like, get off me. I'm trying to hold my own body weight, not yeah. you. Your yeah, flanker, yeah. if they're not right underneath you as a loose head, because I'm obviously trying not to pop. So it's hard. Like you're trying to manage 16 people and their own body weight and then the mm. safety of all. Like it's yeah. hard. It is hard. Whereas if you, ha if you had them nice and stable and that's what used to happen in the old days and they would then step in and they would still be holding that mm. weight and the, the props would be doing something really strange. They'd be actually propping the hooker. And the hooker then might strike properly instead of the ball being fed into the back row. Yeah. And I also think they need to change some of the laws. I mean, South Africa have won three World Cups thanks to their massive pack. Fine, there must be several ways of playing the game. Uh, but they've scored two tries in three World Cup wins. And that's when England were out on their feet in the last one. Uh, I would like to see the ball having to be played when it's at the number eight's feet. And I'd like to see the scrum not being able to go forward more than two metres. Yeah. Uh, and I think that means you get the ball out. I mean, the scrum is supposed to restart the game. Exactly, yeah. And the team get the put in because the other team's made a technical small infringement. Mm -hmm. And we should be restarting. Uh, bigger, bigger scrums will get a push on and then they will go across the scrum mm -hmm. because they know they're going to get the penalty. The referee will never, ever give a penalty against the team who are going forward. Uh, yeah. So they think that they're in uh, 
a safe zone, which they shouldn't be. Now, I know no, you're smiling because you've done it yourself. Um, and of course, of course, players should do it. But you've got to keep the laws up, going up with the problems. I mean, the French call a ruck a spontaneous. Sorry, they, they call a, a ruck a spontaneous scrum. And the ball has got to come out of the ruck mm-hmm. in five seconds if it's available. Bring that into the scrum, I think you save solve a lot of problems. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you 100%. And re- regarding the tackle, do you think we're going in the right direction with these more red cards? Any kind of head contact guys are getting red cards now. Do you think that's the right way to get it out of the game? Yeah, unfortunately, it is the right way. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, again, the coaches, um, and this is the whole principle of rugby now at stake, the coaches have brought in rugby league coaches. I mean, look at what Sean Edwards has done to yes. France. It's magnificent. But you tackle around the shoulders because you don't want the offload. Mm. So if you can stop the offload, habits. so therefore you're going to tackle upright. Now, if you tackle upright, you're taking, in my view, high risk for yourself and for the opponent. Uh, and we've got to look at that. Now, I don't know how that's going to be looked at. Because once you say you must tackle around the waist, that can be equally dangerous. I mean, Faftoclerk went low a few months ago against New Zealand and he hit the knee and he was instantly unconscious. Mm. So you can't actually legislate and say you must do this. And that's the only way you can tackle. Uh, But players have got to be more conscious of of themselves and of their opponents. I mean, there used to be respect for an opponent. I don't think that exists now. And the one reason it doesn't exist is that rugby is now played for money and it's not designed to be played for money. There are decisions which could go either way at a breakdown. So now you've got uh, teams which are, uh, they've got to win. Yeah. And if they don't win, there's no point in playing. Mm. Look, look at Eddie Jones. He's in awful trouble, probably as he should be, um, for his style of playing what England don't do with their resources. Uh, but it's a it's massive worry. So do you think maybe then that the only way to get to clubs and coaches and players, because can I just, I'm going to actually make this point, you're the one referee that, there, uh, any referee who might listen to this are going to say, Lindsay has never been so quiet listening to a referee. <laughs> so that's testament to you, sir. But um, do we start now kind of finding clubs, finding managers, finding players? Do you think that's the way? Because I do agree with you, I think, it's now become so marketable and it's money and nobody wants their best players missing and best players don't want to be missing because they don't want to be, they want to be in teams to get paid, to be up on the upper echelons of being highly recognised and highly regarded. So is that the way we think we should go to kind of, for people to sit up and listen? You could certainly say there's going to be a fine, you Mm. know, for red card equals a fine for for the player, but they'll be paid for by the club. Uh, I mean, look at Cristiano Ronaldo in the soccer who's paid like, paid per week what Johnny Sexton gets paid in a year yeah. he's not actually risking anything apart from perhaps a little uh, well, mo- maybe an- a hair, an- out, an- place a hair out of place a- and he's making this massive money when he gets fined the club pay uh, so how do you get to the person who's done the act and know that you've got to them uh, but it's terrible that we're thinking that way mm-hmm. but world rugby instead of looking at all these as I said shot clocks and everything else they need to really get down to where, the, where they're going because the professional game is taking over. What is it, 300 professional players in, in Ireland and 150,000 amateur? Mm. And the professionals are ruining it for the amateurs. Yeah. So that's got to be looked at. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely st- stuff to be done, especially approaching a World <coughs> Cup next year. Um, but we could talk about it all day. 
because it's very interesting uh, where we are with that. But to talk about the rugby that happened again, just want to give a shout out to how amazing Gary Ringrose is as a player and as a captain. He had two, no right to score those two tries. Two incredible he tries. He was unbelievable. He was moving so well. He's, he's playing the best rugby I've ever seen him play. He absolutely, uh, his dummy to Stuart Moore. Yeah. <laughs> I say he's still reading. Stuart, he Stuart Moore's in the stands somewhere. Stuart Moore's still. like, oh he did a 360. God. I was like, oh, he sold he, you. <laughs> and then he did it again. And then he also had the brains to go back and ask the ref. I think there was a head knock back there. Will you have a look at it? And James Ewan got a yellow card. Now it happened. Which is lovely. And he's really shown his leadership. And yeah. I think um, on the commentary over the weekend, it was kind of saying, you know, you know, he's definitely a potential captain for Ireland to step in maybe after Johnny yeah. and obviously if Pio Mani and if they step away, yeah. he's such a good man and, and he does. And, you know, he definitely was probably one of my players of the Autumn Series there because he was so unassuming. He got about his job, his tackle, his defensive cover, his reading That's of the, the game. He's so consistent. He oh, never has fantastic. a bad game. Never. I don't think he's ever had a bad game. Yeah, no. And he does the good things that only really a rugby brain will see. Yes. He's controlling defensive lines. He's making tackles. He's making reads. If you like player cam him, you can see him talking to everybody. Yeah. It's incredible. I can see him going in to be our Irish captain until the day he retires. No, 100%. Isn't it the first time that you've seen anybody who you could say, look, here is another Brian O'Driscoll. Yes. Yes. Here is another Mike Gibson who was a boyhood hero of mine. Mm. Uh, Unbelievably, nearly unnoticing. You don't really see what they're doing. And mm. yet, if you watch them from beginning to end solely at a camera on them, you, d- you wouldn't believe what they're doing. As no. you say, in defense yep. and in attack. I mean, you, he had no right, as you said, brilliantly put, to score those tries. Phenomenal. Oh, yeah. his footwork. Like, he had no room. Like, he just he just meandered. He, he did actually a basketball, nearly 360. <laughs> he got in. And then his strength and just his like his composure to finish his first try anyway which he was he still had so much work to do he did a little bit more time on the set a little bit more space I suppose but even again in that split moment to sell the dummy cut back in and it was probably a pivotal time and I think he was central to again just galvanising exactly that mental stability and mm. uh, resilience that Leinster kind of showed yeah. at the weekend Yes, well done Gary you're playing unbelievable keep it up um, Andrew Porter had a great game and James Lowe was back playing which is great to see especially in the build-up to now the Six Nations and the World Cup next year, his left boot and the Irish wing, do you think we're going to need it? Definitely. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the, uh, he's a complete player at the moment and we are blessed with the back three. I mean, there are so many options mm. that it's very hard for a coach to plan for what Ireland are going to do from that position. Mm. Uh, and I think we've got every chance. We should actually win the, uh, the Six Cup. Nations. Oh, the Six Nations. The wor- the <laughs> how do you think we're going to do this? Wow. Is no pressure now, Owen. That's yeah, a big statement, Owen. How are we going to do in the World Cup? Because this is this has been also the talk in the show. Are we like the nation that's like, oh my God, we've had such a good autumn series. If we win the Six Nations, I think it's going yeah. like game over. The country will start celebrating uh, yeah, the World Cup. If we win Cup the win. Six Nations, probably won't do well in the <laughs> World Cup. But in 2018, when we were number one, if you remember, uh, uh, Steve Hansen, the New Zealand coach, then said, "I wonder how they'd handle it," and yeah. we couldn't handle it. No, I think now we can handle it. Uh, you know, we're taking it one game at a time, or we're ignoring the, we are, the yeah. ratings, and we're just getting on with it. And yeah. I think that's really, really important. It's a dirty pool we're in. It is. Uh, Scotland could do anything; that we could beat them forty points to three, or they could squeeze it out against us. And if we let Finn Russell have a good game, now I think we could, we're very capable of closing him down. If we do that, we'd win. South Africa, do we want to win against them or do we want to lose against them? Because who, who, we meet France or New Zealand next. Uh, so 
if we so you could put out your seconds against South Africa if you were safe, if you thought you'd get who would you prefer, France or New Zealand in the quarters? Oh, but it's France in France and New Zealand are always going to be good. So that that's that's yeah. where it's going to hinge. Yeah. Now if we play against South Africa, and I made the point uh, recently, the last time we played South Africa the other day, five of our team couldn't be considered for the next match because of injury. Mm. That's a third of the starting lineup. Scary. So, if and how do you manage Johnny Sexton? Because at the minute we probably don't have anyone close to how good he is in those pressurized games. It hinges around nine and ten. If we don't have Gibson Park and/or Johnny Sexton, we're in trouble. Mm. Uh, and that's if we if, if we have neither of them, it's going to be very tough. Yeah. And if we don't get out of the quarters this time, uh, and we play very very well, it'll be so disappointing. Oh, tomorrow, but you, but you'd actually yeah. have to think. Well, they've done very well. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, at the Dubai Sevens over the weekend, and there was all kind of names were there. But I was chatting to Dylan Hartley. Oh, obviously, he was captain of guy, England yeah. for years, and he said straight up, he was like, "The targets on Ireland's back. Everyone's coming for us." He yeah, said it straight up. So That's why I think we should actually have a bad Six Nations to take a back <laughs> off our back. Like yeah. I'd risk that if it meant then we're kind of going under the radar because we probably spoke. I think at that time, kind of twenty eighteen, just for that in Japan twenty nineteen World Cup. Um, I think England were fifth or fourth and mm. South Africa were fifth. They were that and they were the two teams that went to final and we were sitting pretty at world, you know, the world number one. Do you know? So again, it's kind of it's just like, you know, championship football with GA or it's test rugby. It's just like it's just one game at a time and you have to be consistent. And if you don't yes. start well or yeah, you're like you're right. Scotland could have that one superior performance against us and they could be world be you know, they're world beaters then. So yeah, I mean they're a mad team to play. I mean they're oh, either God, awful or terrific. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, we'll we'll keep moving on. Months were playing at the weekend away to Edinburgh, and they won thirty eight seventeen. Edinburgh started really well with two early tries, and we we're like, oh no, I like here months are going to get a bad loss away in a cold December night in Edinburgh. But they fought back and they played unbelievably. <coughs> they got tries from Craig Casey, who's playing out of his skin at the moment. Niall Scannell, Calvin Nash is playing really well. Gavin Coombs and Joy Carberry all stepped up to the mark. Did you uh, watch it, Lindsay? Yes, I did. And I'm going to admit this on this show, okay? Yeah. Because I love you, but I think I might start underneath it all slightly have a little bit more love for Munster as we go week by week because I actually <laughs> enjoyed them. They had everything. They had uh, Craig Casey had his little snipe off the back of it. Well, it, the, the mall broke down and then he sniped. Uh, Paddy Patterson came on and he was as lively as Casey. And what I did like about them is they actually went blind a couple of times. It opened like their decision making was fantastic. Calvin Nash, keep going, my friend. Like every week your name is coming up. Uh, Anton Frisch, like, oh, I loved his little pass in mm. just on the game line, little pop mm. pass into a gap. He needs to stay in that monster starting lineup. I'm sorry, yeah. he absolutely has to start. He seems like that missing piece in the centre. Like Big that, time. Yeah, just really good head. and control. Really, really good. I think he's going to be central to everything he's doing in your predicted really good run in Europe. Yeah. And I think Joey Carberry had a poor intercept try there to um, Darcy Graham. Because Edinburgh have some big names like Darcy Graham. Kinghorn was there. Jamie Ritchie. Jamie Ritchie yeah. had a try. I mean, they're a good team. They're very hard to play at when they're at home. So mm. I think it's a big, big bonus point win. Gavin Coombs, absolute powerhouse then. So they just scored from every angle and they just have a different dynamic. And they then Joey came on and scored his try. Exactly. They seem to be playing with a lot of confidence, which we haven't seen with Munster for a while. No. They're running these lines, which is it's just beautiful to see. And I love that John Klein got man of the match as well. Yeah, workhorse. Yeah, workhorse. Just putting in the dirty yards. Yeah. Like it was just really... Jim Hamilton now is the one that gave it to him, so I can see why. 
<laughs> he's another Understandable, but you know what? You need to, re- you see, this is the other thing, isn't it? We, we recognise the fancy stuff because it's exciting to watch and we mm. don't always, as a rugby brain, like Jean Klein got through a lot of dirty work that actually puts the ball on the plate for the good stuff to happen. Exactly. And we don't really get that. Your set piece, your line out, your scrum, like he's central to all of that. So, mm. and you know what? He's had a couple of good performances, so he probably mm. deserved the yeah, shout it's, out. It's good for the, for the workhorses to get the tip of the hat now and again, but Owen, where do you see a monster at the moment? Do you think they're doing well? They'll go well? I think they're going to do really well in Europe. But what do you think? Well, Europe's going to be very tough. I mean, it's, with the game with uh, South African sides in there, it changes the whole dynamic. What I think about Munster is at last they're playing for the coaches. Uh, I think we've seen four or five, six years of, of whatever the South African coaches were trying to do did not suit the Munster psyche uh, mm. at all. And I think Graham Rountree is a splendid man. I really, I mean, I know him well. He's a terrific guy, and now we have a couple of Munster guys down there coaching Munster players. Back to their roots, is Back that right? Back to their on? roots. I mean, when I, when I uh, reffed Munster, I mean, it was Munster players mm. uh, from Lenehan through to Mick Galway to all mm. those guys, and they had a passion, an extraordinary passion for the club. And to see John Klein playing that way, and he hasn't played that way in the past. Uh, I yeah. think this year he's starting to show, I'm going to play for the jersey, which is very unusual. Uh, from what I've seen in the past. So I really wish him well. I wish Munster well, and I think they will do well. But in, in the first thing is that they've got to make sure is they qualify for next year's Europe. Yes. Because they're hanging on at the moment. Uh, and if you look at all the possible ramifications, your head would go mad with trying to do the sums. <laughs> yes. It's they like sh- leaving Sarah Matt's, isn't yeah, it? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can't add. So oh, it's, stop. So, so it's I, tricky. I doubt that now, so sir. It's, so it's tricky. I love the way you call me sir. Do you spell it C-U-R or S-I-R? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends if I go uh, Northside accent or Southside. Once they're doing the right thing, they're, they're creeping up that board. They're just so far yeah, down yeah. in the URC. If they keep going the way they're going, we'll, I think we'll slip in maybe. But I think the best route for us is through Europe to qualify yeah, again. And as you say, Owen, it seems like the lads are playing for Munster the right reasons now. And, yeah. now, and the likes of Leamy and Prendergast have obviously instilled that back into them, like back in the day with the Axels and, yeah. and people like that who just wanted to, they would have played for free. Yeah. Brother comes back to your earlier point that professionalism is kind of ruining the game because mm. guys are just playing for the money now where Munster got so good back in the day because they were playing for their parish. They might have gone out, gone out then and played for Gary Owen or Shannon and then come back to play for Munster. Yeah. So it seems like the, they're pulling it back together and it's all been spearheaded by Roundtree. Yeah, it is. And I'd like to see, for example, Thoman Park full again. Yes. Now, that would mean the people from Cork were want, were wanting to travel again <laughs> yep. because they're not really going down the road anymore. Yes. Uh, and it, it is a shame to see that redeveloped stadium having the ends empty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I refed a match there in 93. But the real story of that match was it hadn't been redeveloped and it could take 11,500 people, 14,000 people got into Thoman Park for Shannon against Gary Owen. That's not fantastic. They were sitting on the top of the stand. They were hanging out of trees. It was bedlam. It was one of the most exciting games, bar none, that I've ever been involved in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the uh, health authorities came along, the police and the fire brigade the next day to say, this can never, ever happen again. <laughs> uh, it was magnificent. And in fact, that was the introduction. Uh, Keith Wood, I played an advantage out on the left. I remember it well. It's in the book. Um, and I thought it was 12. So I said, I'll play on here. Yeah. 
little bit of footwork, a little half dummy and uh, sprint to the line and number 12 crashed over. But it actually was number two. <laughs> Keith it was Wood. Keith Wood. He was announcing himself to the world. Here, you know, here's a new trick. And, uh, and I wouldn't have played advantage if I'd known it was him. We've la- we have laughed about that so often. Uh, it's so uh, funny. That's very funny. Keith Wood, what a legend of the game. Yeah, I, I got it. I didn't play in that era where like club games were just packed to the rafters. I think my father actually played in that game. Did funnily, he really? Funnily enough, back in 93, yeah. Well, your uh, father probably played in... I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I remember going down to referee Young Munster against um, Gary Owen. Yeah. In, oh, God, in, Darby. In, in, in the killing of the Greenfield. In the Greenfield. Also, also known as the fields, killing yeah. fields. But they used to be... <laughs> like, they used to, to stand go. there eight deep. Mm. And, yeah. and, I mean, there was an old bus, double-decker bus would come in for the press... And it was the match went splendidly until some stage. It just broke up. Complete Keith Wood was hurled into the crowd. <laughs> and I remember asking him, you know, what happened? And he said, well, you know, he said, I got my first cap the previous May in Australia. And he said, I was being Clossy and Paco Fitzgerald were the props. Oh, and I was from Gary Owen. So this created an absolute dilemma for a young monster. So the facts duly arrived in, in the Sydney Hotel to Keith Wood. Dear Keith. We wish you well. The lads will look after you. But when you come back to Limerick, it'll be business as usual. <laughs> and that's what started. The, that's what started the fracas in um, that the following October. Yeah, that is so good. Some some unbelievable times for rugby back then before the money came in and started ruining it. But uh, to continue on, another Irish uh, province was in action at the weekend. Connacht were playing against Benetton. They won 38-19. Bonus point win for Connacht. They played pretty well, but... No, we have to say it was against a weak enough Benetton team, but had a beautiful try from Niall Murray. You see the pace of him. Absolutely. He was gone. He was like a gazelle, all six foot seven of him. Yeah. I was like, you can move, boy. It was great. And just on the cusp of him, I was like, was that forward? But sure, look, benefit the doubt, go through a gap. You yeah. don't look back. It's so. a good, good win for Connacht, a much, uh, much needed bonus point. So keeps them somewhat off the bottom to just need to keep up that form. Uh, but moving on to one of their best players, John Porch, our very own producer, Pat, had a big interview with him. So take a look at this. We went to that was the f- first sort of one since we'd been here and the atmosphere is like it's something you don't really see back home um, you know the with with rugby competing with so many sports back in Australia mm. the the atmosphere at the Aviva that night even when we play um, Connacht games there and stuff like it's just electric. Yeah yeah it's good isn't it like the you were actually speaking even there before we started about the just how close you almost came not to playing rugby as well like uh, <laughs> It was like, and you were even kind of said, yeah, like even just tell us a little bit about that and, and how close the league came to kind of cl- nearly claiming you. Yeah, so uh, uh, when I first started high school, um, way back when now, um, my my school didn't have a rugby team for the first years in high school there. So I was actually forced to play play a game of league. I played 20 minutes of it off the bench. Um, I found it absolutely boring. <laughs> Um, but thankfully there was sort of a good bunch of us boys that, at the time at our boarding school who were sort of rugby rugby lads and our parents all got together and sort of said uh, this isn't this isn't on and we, we want our sons to play rugby so thankfully the school sort of <laughs> listened to them and, and put a rugby team together because um, I, I would have been a long year waiting until my second year of school to play rugby again. And then even like when you started playing as well like what level then are you at then as well do you have to go start from the bottom or just get like what other schools would you have been playing against? Um, we just played, so there was, we had a Friday night comp it was called, so every Friday night we played against other schools around our, our region, so there's in Tamworth where I grew up, I'd say there was four, five, maybe six pushing us 
uh, high schools there, so we would play against them. They were all sort of day schools. We were a boarding school. And then we had one, once every year, we had a big sort of rivalry with the private school in Armidale, which is up the road about an hour and a half, two hours. And we'd play them once a year. So that was sort of a big derby match um, and to sort of play a, a private school because we were a public school. So that was a, a good experience. Okay, yeah and, yeah. and there was that nice little bit of a rivalry between the, the private school and... Yeah, it was it was very boarding schools. Uh, we hate you. <laughs> we we want to beat the, beat the living hell out of you. But... Um, after after I finished school, actually, very good mates with a lot of those boys that we, we would have spent playing growing up against and having big rivals against and all get along very well now. And then, like, I suppose Tamworth, like, I, I think I was even saying to you, that's just a little bit outside Sydney, and, and but you were saying it's nearly four hours or something, is there even more outside yeah, it's, Sydney? Like, it's yeah, it's just uh, five, five just, hours yeah. northwest of Sydney, so it's <laughs> just a small drive in terms yeah. of Australia. <laughs> Um, and what is it like as a town? Like you know, like what's what's it? Is it famous for anything? Anyone famous it's, come from it? It's uh, famous for it's the it's called the country music capital of Australia. Oh. Um, so maybe that's why I'm so into country music. Other than my mum uh, made sure I was raised on it. But um, every year around January, around the end of January, start of February, I think it is, they have a big country music festival that goes on there for about ten to twelve days. And it's actually the one time of the year where all the locals want to get out of town because <laughs> everyone from outside of town's coming into town. But um, it's a it's a good buzz around town. You know, it's I think the population there is about fifty thousand usually. When that's going on, it's up around ninety. It's crazy. Okay, and is it on like is it on the coast as well? Like or no, out it's in the... um, very inland. I'd say I think the closest beach is about three hours away if you drove straight uh, east towards the sort of Coast Harbour. A lot of Aussies are kind of like just you know, as you said, like five, six hour drives to go everywhere. Did you start driving early enough, like at an early age and kind of just to get around the place and see a bit more of the world as well? Yeah, so when I when I uh, visited my dad, uh, my parents are split. So when I used to visit my dad, he lived on the farm. So I used to just beat around the bush there in, in like a sort of a buggy that he had um, learnt to drive. But I wasn't, I started, so in, in Australia you drive when you're 16. Yeah. I learnt in an automatic. Um, but a lot of country kids learn in manuals and my car actually broke down and I had to drive a manual and I was in Sydney at the time. It's one of the quickest ways to learn to drive manual is in a big city. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Took me, it took me a few days and I was, I was like I'd been doing it all my life. So. <laughs> and what type of like, farm did your dad have? Like, uh, he just lived on it. He had a little hobby farm, but he, he grew up, he was a shearer. Mm. Um, so he w went all around country New South Wales shearing sheep and stuff. So. Um, I'd follow him around, help him out in the shearing shed and that. You'd pitch in and do a bit of, like, would you shear the sheep then yourself? No, well, I did. So, uh, funny enough, when I was in school in, in year 10, which is you have two more years after that of high school in Australia, um, you could do a, a, core, a subject where you actually had to um, shear sheep. And for some unknown reason, I decided to do that, that, <laughs> that subject that year. Um, and it was, I don't know how my dad did it for about 20 years. It yeah. is on your back, it's one of the hardest things ever. <laughs> Bending over, um, trying to control the sheep while you're doing it as well, like they're kicking and, and spluttering everywhere. It's, I, I don't know how he did it yet, it's tough work. <laughs> and then what's the, the rest of your family? Like, do you have brothers and sisters or anything like that? Or um... Yeah, I have, so on my mum's side, I have a brother who's just about to turn 14. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then on my dad's side, I have two sisters, uh, One's twenty-two, and the other would be eighteen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and are they all kind of like 
back in Australia, they're not on their travels or anything like that, or kind of doing overseas or anything like that. Or uh, no, my youngest sister is sort of working out what she wants to do. She's she's a bit like me. She hates school, yeah, um, or university that sort of stuff. Um, my eldest sister is she's doing uh, teaching mm. at university. And then obviously my brother's just gone in, he's into his second or third year of high school now. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, like, I suppose with rugby then, like, when did that start looking like that might be something you could do, you know, as a career, like, you know, when did that start getting serious for you? Um, probably around 16, 17, I uh, started in my area, started making sort of rep representative teams and that, um, and then when I was 17, I made the national indigenous team. Uh, went down to, they played in the division two of the national schoolboys championships and went down there and sort of had a good tournament. And then, so that sort of um, made me want to make the the New South Wales schoolboys team mm -hmm. the following year into the main, into the division one championships. And uh, thankfully I, I made the, that the New South Wales twos in that. And that sort of when I thought, yeah, I could maybe do something about this. And from there, Living in the country New South Wales, the only place to sort of go play rugby is in Sydney. So as soon as I finish my <laughs> leaving cert over here, you call as soon mm. as I finish that, um, packed up from home and said, Mum, I'm moving to Sydney. And I was down there at 18. Wow, 18, yeah. yeah. And what was, like, I suppose even if you look back now, learning experiences or as an 18 year old going to the, the big smoke, I suppose we yeah. even call it, like anything that stands out is even kind of like, oh, I can't believe I even did that. Um, it was tough because I was also doing my plumbing apprenticeship at the time, um, obviously had to work as well. And sort of getting up and going to that at um, like 5.30 in the morning to make to get on the train and go to that and then having to make time to go to trainings and that. And there was other times where I was in a, a, national, a national academy. So I was actually in to do gym in the middle of the city at 5 in the morning and then have to get a train like an hour away to work and then back again, train to another session in the afternoon. So like there was a lot of running around. Mm. And, um, you know, it was, thankfully I had the commitment to do it. Um, you know, it served me well. And yeah, like even then, yeah, back then, like money probably, you know, it's it's not you're not going to be like rolling around the money or anything like that. So money must have been tight. And, and were you staying like were you staying with a bunch of mates or? Yeah. So the club I played for in Sydney, Northern Suburbs Rugby Club, um, they rented a house sort of about half half an hour train ride out of the city centre. Um, so there was four or five of us rugby boys from the club sort of in the Colts program. So that's under 20s. Mm -hmm. um, all living in the house, very rugby boys house. Um, it was good though, cheap rent, um, living off bare minimum food <laughs> yeah. and stuff, <laughs> getting up, going to work, come back, have a good time on the weekends. And then plumbing as well, like, so you kind of did that for a couple of years and kind of like, let's say in Ireland now here, like, would you be able to tackle something like, you know, like you, um, you'd be handy at a few things like? I did it for six months because uh, funnily enough, I compound fractured my leg playing club rugby uh, while I was doing that. So I had to take 10 months off that, moved home to my mum. Um, when I came back from all that stuff, I tried to get a job back doing plumbing, but sort of didn't work out that way, couldn't find one. So a guy at my rugby club gave me a carpentry uh, apprenticeship. So then I went into carpentry. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and I got sort of halfway through that. So like I know bits and bobs, like I'm sort of, you know, I'll, I'll be able to do a bit of handyman work every, like here and yeah, there, yeah. but I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a jack of all, master of none. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you were talking about that, yeah, that compound fracture. Um, so yeah, that, all of a sudden you're on a course, you're, you're hoping to go somewhere like that, and then you get thrown off course completely with that. How, how bad was that? Like the fact that you had to go home then as well for yeah. so many months, like. That was, um, 
yeah, that was probably the toughest, one of the toughest periods of my life. Um, so when it happened, I didn't really know how serious it was until I woke up from the operation and that, um, and what I was told when I first woke woke up was when I first went into theatre that they were thinking about amputation. Whoa, okay. Um, and then thankfully, <laughs> the guys, the doctor's name was Dr. Ruff, who, who did the surgery, so... Um, he did the surgery and woke up after surgery and the next day he, when they do the, the rounds, he came in, he said surgery went well, um, but it looks like you'll probably never play rugby again. And that, that just absolutely killed me. So then I was talking to my coach at the time. I, I was like, I, I need to get into coaching as soon as, you know, I'm sort of back on my feet mm. and able to do some, some normal stuff. And so at the age of eight, uh, 18, I was thinking about like my coaching career and how yeah. that's going to pan out. Cause <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to be in, um, in the trades for trades for the rest of my life. So that was a big shock, but then thankfully went back to my mum's house, which was up in Brittany, Brisbane on the Sunshine Coast. Um, had a very good uh, physiotherapist up there who used to do the wallabies back in the early 2000s when they were sort of peak of the, the top of the mm. bunch. Um, and went went through that with him. He was sort of talking to me like, you know, it was going well. Um, could probably see you getting back within 18 months and just carried on there and... F uh, thankfully enough, like he was amazing. My body just responded to everything, and I was back playing within ten. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, what, did you have to then? You're going like you know, starting back in the ladder again. Like how? Like when did you go head back to Sydney again to yep. start playing? And yeah, so I went back to Sydney. Went back to my club. There was uh, still in the un under twenties, the Colts program, um, and just sort of worked my way back up through that. Did did a year in the under 20s because a lot of a lot of people the sort of around my my age was going into the um the men's age group to sort mm. of push themselves but I was happy enough to do the two years in the Colts and um sort of work my way from there just get back to playing rugby that was the main thing at the time yeah and, and then so like when you played as well was it wing again like was that always your position or did you kind of go around the back line then I've all, so growing up I actually started at nine and then I sort of, I think I hit a growth spurt around 15, I moved to 10. Mm -hmm. um, did that for a few years, absolutely hated it. <laughs> I felt too cramped. So um, I moved back, to, I moved to 15. Mm -hmm. um, and then so a lot of growing up, I played at 15. But then when it sort of came to representative sides and that, I'd, I'd play on the wing, yeah. Yeah. And, then, and so then like... Like, was the ambition, of course, like 15s back then? So, like, when did sevens come onto the radar then? Like, was that around the same time or, like, did, did somebody else approach you or how did that kind of, Yes. Uh, my first sort of involvement with sevens was my last year of school. We, our, our school put a team into a, a sevens tournament, um, a New South Wales sevens tournament, and we ended up coming second in that, so which meant we got to go to the national sevens tournament. Mm -hmm and play against the best sort of 12 schools in New South, uh, New South Wales and Queensland. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my so first sort of experience of sevens and I absolutely loved it, like the, the free space and just yeah. the running rugby. That was my first and then went to Sydney and it was sort of 15s when I first was there but played the odd bit of sevens um, and that sort of sparked a bit of interest and was uh, people came speaking about whether I'd be interested in it and then I uh, got picked up into the NRC, yeah, uh, which used to run back then uh, for the North Harbour Rays, and got a few a run of games there, and off the back of that, um, an Austra the Australian Seven sort of came asking if I would be interested to come into a training camp. Yeah, yeah, and then so like you would have been maybe, 
because you, you went to then represent Australia in the, the Olympics as well. So you probably would have been like 21, 22 at that stage. Like, yeah, I think 20, I think I was 22, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And had you been playing long at that stage on the sevens? Or? I was six months in. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had been in the program for six, uh, well, I'd been training with them for, say, for about eight, eight to nine months, but I'd just been contracted for six months by the time the Olympics rolled around. Mm -hmm. So Andy Friend, who's now my coach here, he was the coach at the time, um, I had no, I had aspirations to make Olympics, but I had no hopes of like, mm -hmm. I was just, if I make it, like that's amazing. But I'm not putting that pressure on myself. I'm new into the program. Mm -hmm. And we were up in uh, Darwin, Darwin doing a heat camp for the, for the sev uh, for Rio. And that was the sort of 16, as a 16 man squad. So they were taking 14 from that 16 man squad to Rio. So just making that was, mm -hmm. was an achievement in itself for me at the time. And then at the end of that sort of camp, um, he brought everyone in individually to the room and told them if if you're going or not. Thank, um, thankfully enough, he brought me in and, and yeah. said, oh, you'll be going. And he said, uh, he, he still recalls it. He said, I just looked at him like I was a ghost, like for, for real, I'm going. <laughs> it was unbelievable to be told, yeah, that you're going to go to the Olympics and represent your country. What's the experience then of you going over to, to Rio, like after Brazil, you know, 22, kind of playing sport, you're kind of like... You know, did you, like a few moments to soak in? You know how big of an occasion this all was. Like, yeah, it was. It was obviously not the be the best tournament, but the Olympics itself. Um, for us, we the sevens was one of the first um, sports to to happen. But thankfully, we were after the women, so we we actually got to go to the um, opening ceremony. Mm. But the girls didn't get to do that, and that was. Uh, something I'll never forget, like walking around uh, around the the stadium with all the other um, countries. It was, uh, it was surreal. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, so you get back, you're kind of still doing the sevens and stuff. You were even saying that you would have come up against Greg O'Shea and and Ireland and stuff like that as well. And yeah, um, yeah, just kind of like the. Would you have had a couple of clashes over the years then as well with with that Irish team, like because they're on their way, they were starting to, you know. You know, they're yeah, the, starting to kind of get big wins, I think, around that stage as well. Like. Yeah, we, we played the Irish boys a few times uh, as they were sort of coming into the the program, the, the World Series. Um, you know, the last time I played the Irish boys was in San Francisco. Um, I think it was in the eighth place playoff and they touched us up a little bit. Um, <laughs> it was always a very tough game against the Irish boys. Uh, they they played sort of a very wide to wide uh, game and and they held onto the ball exceptionally well and I just remember in defence sometimes it was you're out on the absolute bollocks and you're just like are they ever going to give the ball up? <laughs> um, and and then for yourself like the like you get back then would you still have had like ambitions at this stage? Or was there any kind of super rugby interest or anything like that back in that stage like when you're like to to play fifteens or anything like after kind of having that experience with the sevens then as well yeah i've always had aspirations to play 15s mm. uh super rugby wise or or nationally but it's sort of what my time in australia that that never came the opportunity never came to go to the 15s uh in terms of super rugby so um i was happy d doing what i was doing at the sevens um we won our first when andy took over and we won our first uh tournament in 2018 and it was our home tournament so things were starting to look Looked like they were going up for the for us at the time, but mm -hmm. then uh, Friendy left, and uh, it sort of I fell out of love with with the game at the time. Um, but thankfully, he gave me a call and sort of reignited my passion for it, and gave me my first professional 15s contract. And I haven't really looked back since. And, and then yeah, because like, what you were saying that was maybe a little bit over three years ago, or 
uh, even maybe a little bit longer when you he first reached out to you. But can you remember kind of him giving you a shout? Like, and would you like did it come out of the blue? Like you weren't expecting anything like this? Or no, I, well, I've always spoken to friendly just outside of rugby. Just would he would always check in, see how I'm going. I was actually on a we were doing I was doing a tour with a good friend of mine uh, for like a sort of scouting thing for Indigenous talent, and we were in Coober Pedy, which is in the middle of Australia, like literally in the middle of Australia, at the time. And I'd been talking to Friendy sort of about it, but he said, oh, sorry, like there's probably not going to be an opportunity this year to, to come over, but I'd love to get you over the following year, mm. which is when my contract in the Sevens was running out. And um, I was like, oh, no, that's fine. Um, so I was out doing this uh, recruitment drive and literally in the middle of nowhere, and Friendy called me up and was like, mate, uh, can you come over in four months? I've got a contract for you. Uh, I said yes on the phone. I hadn't even told my wife. That, I hadn't even told my uh, wife Ella at the time. Um, and then after I get off the phone, I ring her up and said, "We're moving to, to Ireland." And she's like, "What?" Uh, and yeah, you you're like Ella, kind of like you're both grew up in the same town and stuff as well. And um, yeah, like a big thing then to, for like a, a couple then to go off. And you guys were married at this stage then, were, like and no, we were just we were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time of this. Uh, we had just moved into a together at our first place in uh, Sydney for, we'd been living there for about three months, it could be a little bit longer when this all happened. So we just signed a one year lease on our house, like expecting to be there for for the whole year. And next minute I'm calling her up saying we're leaving. <laughs> and um, yeah, and was there any protests on her end or anything like that or? No, she's always been so so supportive of what I, what I've done, mm. um, which, you know, I can't thank her enough for that. She's, she's always backed me 100%. COVID kind of almost kind of not a great way to kind of see Ireland at the start. You know, like all these places you could go, as I said, it's often like a launch pad to go see around Europe as well, but all of a sudden you're now just confined to your house or apartment then for, for the guts of, I don't know, how, how long would that even gone for? Two years, like yeah. 18 months? like. Yeah, no, we thought how good getting over to Ireland on, on Europe's doorstep and then that hit. Um, but at the time we were sort of still training, so... You know, I was able to get out of the house and do stuff, but I felt so bad for Ella. You know, she was stuck in the house for that year and a half um, with a what was it, a two k radius. That's mm. all. That's all we could go on walks for. So we were we lived near the prom in uh, Salt Hill, so we'd walk down the prom <laughs> that many times a day. Um, but you know, it was a tough period, but thankfully it's all over. And you know, now we we've been able to enjoy a bit of Europe and hopefully see a lot more of it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and, and even then as well, like. Um, with yourself in your own form, like like you really are like settled in now at this stage. Like, you, how do you kind of have you found the whole thing, like the experience over the last few years now? I found I found it uh, very easy to move over here. Actually, like everyone here is so friendly and, and loving. Um, you know, we we could have a bad game, but they'll still come up and, and say hello and make sure you're doing all right. Or everyone in in Ireland and Galway is is just so lovely to be around. And and you know, being here for. Well, going on four years nearly. Um, I'm loving it here, and hopefully there's a few more. <laughs> and then what about, like, let's say even now this weekend, like you have someone like Mac Hansen, he's going to be kind of lining up against Australia, and um, he's already proved himself to be a real kind of character even. And, and like, even there we saw him last week sticking his finger in Joey Carberry's ear when he was up on the big screen, and he just seems completely at ease. Is he like that to kind of be around? And Yeah, he's such a, he's such a calm person to be around, so relaxed and, and free-spirited, does, does what he wants, um, and everything just comes off for him. And, and you know, I love to see it. Like he's, he's done so well for himself. He moved over here, and within sort of six months, he was in the Irish camp, and he's just kept kicking on. I was kind of thinking, yeah, like um, 
that that game, I suppose you, you might have been watching that as well. Now I, I think we ended up losing it, like, but the game against France earlier this year and that kind of restart. Is he yeah. is he doing that type of stuff in training as well, or? Uh, he, yeah, he now he is. That obviously the weather's a bit different in in Galway, mm. so I don't think he'll get as kicks as good as he did there. But um, no, he does do special things like that in training all the time, and you just sit there and and you're in amazement. And um, in terms of like other characters in the squad, does anybody else stand out as like? Uh, a guy you kind of like, or a couple of guys you'd even kind of like, they're the life and soul of the party. Who are, who are the guys down in Connacht who'd be good for that? Uh, Bundy is is very big part of, of Connacht. He's one of the loudest human beings you'll ever meet. Um, you could be a kilometre away and you'll hear him laughing or roaring about something. He, yeah, he's a he's a big energy around around the place. Yeah, yeah. And then even with yourself, Andy Andy kind of said something there recently enough that he was like, he's almost bigging you up for Australia again there recently enough. Like, it, nice to kind of hear that type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like, always good to hear those sort of things out of your head coach. And, you know, all I'm focused on at the moment is playing well for Connacht. And if those those honours come, then that's a, that's a big achievement, yeah. And you, but you're still maybe, even for Ireland, you're a couple of years out, aren't you? Even if we wanted to try and nab you. Yeah, well. I'm not sure what the what the go is there, but I, I, see, I see a bit of talk about that. So uh, when that if that path comes down that I'm here long enough, you know, we'll cross that then. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I suppose, yeah, get through these next couple of years yeah. first. Like, but um, for, for someone like Andy, who kind of like has meant an awful lot to your kind of career as well, um, you know what? What will it kind of mean when he kind of heads off then at the end of the season? Like you'll it, be missed, I'd say, out west. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a sad day when when he goes. Um, you know, he's he gave me my first contract at the sevens, and then uh, gave me my first professional fifteens contract as well. So he's sort of been there every step of the way for me. Um, but he's also just been there outside of rugby for me as well. If I've ever needed to talk to someone about anything, he's always always willing to listen. So to see him go is going to be sad. But you know, he's he's got a young family. You know, he's he's a grandfather, so he's got to go home and and see his family who he hasn't been able to see for so long as well. So you know, it's exciting for him, but it's also sad for us. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of like even the the setup down there, there's going to be like. Building work going on. It's going to like they're they're looking to you know get the attendance up and, and the capacity as well and the new pitch as well. Like things are kind of happening at least down yeah. there, aren't they? Like yeah. Yeah, the new pitch. The new pitch is very good. You know, I was sort of always against uh, synthetic pitches, four G pitches, but it's actually very nice. The the quality of the pitch is very good. Um, so I think that's going to improve our game a lot. And then as you said, the stadium's about to undergo. Uh, a big revamp, which is I think they're hoping to finish by 2025. So you know, if I'm here that long, that, that would be amazing to see because um, it, it is going to be a big thing for the the province. Yeah, get the revamp, and then you play for Ireland the same year. Do what I was just going to ask you as well is like just your time here. I suppose maybe one on the pitch and one off the pitch thing of like what's what's the best you know like what's the most enjoyable what's the most standout moment for you I suppose in the last few years. Um, I think the most enjoyable thing on the pitch was uh, would be it'd be sort of three occasions was last was sort of last year or the year before when we were the first time we'd won all three away away games against the other provinces. Mm. Um, to do something like that with with Connacht was was very special with the bunch of boys. Um, off the pitch, it's just enjoying my my time here with my wife, making making memories, getting around, seeing other parts of the world that if we were in Australia, probably never would have seen. Mm. To ask you as well, um, other sevens players you think could make it in in the fifteens game as well, like even guys that are you might have played against in the past or are on the circuit now. Um, I would love to see Terry Kennedy play fifteens. Mm. I think he is exceptional. Um, he. For the Ireland team, he's yeah, he's nearly everything for them. Um, I'd love to see him get a chance. I, I think he he would really deserve he deserves one. And I think he would go well as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, brilliant. 
lovely meeting you and good luck the rest of the season and and good luck as I said yeah just enjoy as much of Ireland and Europe now that you, the doors are open again like yeah <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me Great stuff from John Porch there. He's actually a good guy. We met him the other day in the Aviva Stadium, mm-hmm. Ireland v Australia. He was there with his missus and his big moustache. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say he was just about got it by the last day of November by the looks of it. But, yeah. uh, fair play to him. He looks great. I keep up the results uh, on your performances, John, because there's a ch- chance he might be playing for Ireland at some stage. He was kind of trying to figure out if he's going to be qualified and we were having a t- quick talk about that. So watch this space. John Porch with an Irish jersey on wouldn't be bad. Join his friend Mac Hansen. But the other URC results, just to round it up very quickly. Sharks beat Ospreys 25-10. Stormers beat Dragons 34-26. Uh, Zebra got a baiting off Glasgow Warriors 45-17. Zebra were at home. Bulls smashed Cardiff. Don't know what's going on in Cardiff at the moment. Bulls won 45-9. And then Lions beat Scarlets 32-15. So the South African teams are flying it at the moment. And just to quickly give our Never Stop Competing moment of the week, together with Bank of Ireland, we can't not give it to Lindsay's Leinster, who came back from 22-3 down and 14 men to beat Ulster. What was the final score? 38-29. Uh, 35 unanswered points. Gary Ringrose, unbelievable. Uh, so very well done, Leinster. You get our Never Stop Competing moment of the week, together with Bank of Ireland. And just before we talk to Owen about his book, I just want to give a shout out to my, my lads, uh, the Irish Sevens guys. We got to the final in Dubai Sevens against South Africa. Unfortunately, didn't get the win, but a silver medal, guys, is top class, especially without Terry Kennedy playing. I was in the stands with Terry Kennedy having a point. Oh, were you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, the World Player of the Year is sitting with me having a point, watching our team play, and the boys did really, really well. So Does he miss it? He, I think he does miss it, but you know what? Every good thing has to come to an end. And well, listen, what a, what a swang song to go out on! Like uh, World Sevens Player of the Year, he was in the top try scoring, wasn't he? For the year as well, fifty-two tries in the year, something crazy like that. Um, but I don't know. I was kind of chatting to him, and he, he there's a Paris twenty twenty four Olympics coming up, and he he's still in shape, so we never know. Yeah, he might come back. A little rest, a little he's rest. A little I thought stuff. you were going to say he's going to come over to fifteen. So I was like, no, no you heard no, it no. here. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, was, shout out to the boys and the girls did well as well. So uh, best luck in Cape Town now. Cape Town Sevens is this weekend, but the man of the moment that's in the room at the moment, the refs call is your book. It's out at the moment, um, and anywhere you can get your books and it's going to be a good little Christmas present but do you want to give me a synopsis of what it's all about Owen? Well from the very beginning I knew I was going to play for Ireland there was no doubt um, I was 10 years of age when I drop kicked uh, my, my rugby ball through my father's office window luckily, <laughs> luckily he'd gone to make a cup of tea because the shards of glass that were embedded <laughs> in his chair and on the blotter were quite oh extraordinary he was, very, he was very patient about it all he said what foot did you kick that with? And I said, it was my left foot. And I, that was the first time I knew that I was empty. F- I could kick with both feet, uh, des- which was dexterous. terrific. And I went on to play yeah. for Leinster Schools with a very famous team that won the uh, championship that year. We hadn't beaten uh, Ulster at schools level because they have an extra six months. But on that team was a whole Black Rock backline: Ben Underwood, Peter D, who traditionally would rip us to part, apart against Belvedere. I mean, Black Rock have 70 cups schools cups and Belvedere comes second and we have 12 wow. so, so we're not we're not going to catch them anytime soon uh, but that was magnificent and then a bad injury uh, turned me by accident to the whistle and I went up through the ranks and luckily um, I, I made it to the top and was involved in like fabulous matches 
Um, and with the return of the Springboks into the international scene, I finished off with Scotland, South Africa. So that meant, meant I'd covered all the teams. But perhaps the, the, some parts of the book, which I, which I really like, um, the, there's a great piece about Joy Neville and Helen O'Reilly, who are the two women's ref. I mean, Joy had played, and uh, I have a photograph in the book of her playing and one of her mm-hmm. refereeing, because she was actually truly magnificent as a ref. I mean, she'd probably cheated more often than most, so she knew all <laughs> the tricks of the trade. But her whole, her whole communication system uh, was fantastic. Never too much, never too little, always courteous, always firm. And, and those are the things that you really want to see uh, uh, in any referee. And in fact, what we see now is all this first name terms and uh, referees thinking that their players are their friends, and whereas all you can get is respect. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, you can be friendly with them. Of course, you can have a, a thing but, uh, in the bar. But, but to be honest, it's, it's all gone too far in that po- point of view. The England v. France matches of the late 80s and early 90s were were notorious and infamous, and I was involved in one capacity or another in five of them. Two I refed, uh, Stephen Hillage refereed uh, the worst one, with two French players sent off, uh, and they, there was kicking, there was punches, there, was, there, were, there were definitely amphetamines. <laughs> um, I love the honesty. It, so no, wait, no shadow of a doubt, and uh, um, I cover all that in the book. I was standing beside Daniel Dubroca, who was the French coach when he got David Bishop, the New Zealand ref, at the quarterfinal, uh, England-France, France-England, and he, um, he got him up against the wall, and he called him a cheat. Now, I know Dubroca well. He wasn't going to be violent, but he was very unlucky because in those days, the referee was wired for sound, but it only went to the press and you couldn't turn it off until you went into the dressing room for a technician. So all, all the press were about to wrap up for the day when suddenly they heard this noise and they heard Dubrocka calling the referee a cheat. So he had to stand down, which in a was a shame because uh, a lovely man. And uh, he got away with a lot. Uh, he got punished a lot harder than Razi Erasmus got punished. Um, so that's that's all in the book and the famous I mean I refereed in 1990 and uh, the game was delayed but it had no violence in it well it nearly had before kickoff because in those days the two teams would come out of the dressing rooms together and be glass sliding doors and you'd have France lining up beside England and we went out and the sliding doors weren't open so Brian Moore decided he'd stand on Ruma's foot Ruma decided he'd shoulder. Mickey Skinner was getting involved. And I was pleading, could you wait until we get out? Could, you know, after kickoff, fine, we'll deal with it. But in here, it's a bit yeah. tricky. So suddenly, the sliding doors opened. And later on, we found out that the real reason was that the French president, Francois Mitterrand, had ordered another cognac with his coffee. So, of course, the teams couldn't go out until the great man was in a seat. No way. Uh. So, so that, was, that was good fun. After the Lascoube and Moscato incident in, uh, in 92... Um, we didn't. We were escorted off the pitch, but we actually didn't think we'd need a police escort at the dinner, as well, because some of the wow. um, supporters and indeed some of the French committee were completely upset. They with came us. to find you. They came to find us, and when they realised what had actually happened, they extended the um, six months suspensions, which the players got there. Now there's a decent suspension. Six months. Six months out <sighs> gone. Your season done. And Moscato and Lascoube never played for France again. Wow. Wow. In the 2007 World Cup, I was wandering through Mont- Montparnasse and I went past this guy and we both stopped and thought, is that him? <laughs> and we both turned around and it was it was Moscato. 
Uh, so we stopped and we chatted for an age. And he said, you know, without, without, uh, without Hildridge sending me off, he said, I would never have my own television program. <laughs> uh, so he said, in a way, thank you. And tell him maybe someday I'll forgive him. <laughs> so I thought, you know, after 15 years, parole for the ref was, prob <laughs> was probably yeah, OK. Uh, but he also had a, an acting career. There was a famous movie, 36 Key Days Orfevre, uh, and uh, Gerard Depardieu and uh, Daniel Otay was in it. And so was Vincent Moscato. No way. Yeah, so he clapped me on the back, gave me a hug, and uh, sent me on my way. So I'm just out of traction <laughs> from, from that hug all those years oh ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jeez, I'm enthralled by everything you're saying. He I, actually I, had me yeah. on his radio show uh, at one stage, and um, this was all going to be a lovely conversation. And he's, the first question, he said, well, I want to ask uh, Owen, why are the Britannic referees always against France? And I said, well, wait a second. They're not. And I said, Irish aren't Britannique referees anyway. <laughs> so, so I said, no, you're different. Oh, my what a way God. to dig in the knife there to yeah, yeah, start away. off the interview. Well, wow. straight away. That is so stuff. good. Yeah. I could honestly listen to you talk about it, your stories all day, Owen. And the beautiful thing that I think makes your book different is that you're coming from a different angle. You've, you've been in all these stories and you're not just a player. You're not worried about like burning bridges with other past players. You can tell all these stories with complete honesty and. I think that book's going to be incredible. I know Lindsay's going to get it anyway. No, because actually I was chatting, we were chatting again about the Joy novel. I, I really like Joy as a referee yeah. because she's, you know, great character, great chatting. But the other thing is like, which is nice because it's hard to actually, when you when I would have looked at her and watched her in awe with that team in 2014, they beat New Zealand. She was cheater. And you're kind of saying, oh, you're here refereeing now being like, <laughs> you know, hyper vigilant. And then I'm like, I know you'd be doing what I'm doing, trying to cheat the laws. But at the same time as a referee, she kind of she's not condescending. There's good respect for you as a player because she was there. And that yeah. really comes across with joy. Yeah. Um, and as I said, she tr at all times lets the game flow. And that's all you ever want as a player. Yeah. Bit of clarity, bit of consistency for both teams. And really, she's never... She's very, very unassuming, but she's such a great impact when she's needed. And I think she's testament to the to the master himself that sits to well, my left. Well, it was it was fantastic to work with her, though Dave McHugh, I have to say, did most of it uh, because he, he persuaded her to take mm. it up. And that's covered in, in the ref's call as well. Um, but when when she was came, first of all, into the top 50, the elite referees in Ireland, herself and Helen would sit at different tables. They were totally accepted. And then you'd put clips up on a screen and say, tell me, what's the decision here? And you see some guys talking to each other and being worried. Joy's hand would shoot up immediately and she'd be right 80 percent of the time. And if she wasn't right, she'd quiz down why she wasn't right. And then she'd say, yeah, I get it. And she got it immediately. The one thing she and Elaine Roland had in common, both players, don't forget, who played for Ireland, they got it, they understood it, and they could nearly mm. immediately, if you said, look, I'd prefer you to do it this way, move into this position instead of that position, they would be delivering that the next match. Whereas other, other referees would take three or four matches a month or two, and then they'd be getting that right. Mm. And while they were getting that right, something else was slipping. With Joy and Elaine Roland, it was instant. And do you think that's because as a player, they would have obviously done post-match reviews. They would have obviously tweaked whether that's a pass or Joy is a flanker in her back row or her line out lifting or whatever that may be. Do you think that directly correlated to how they could adapt as a referee? From yeah, that their analysis back? and understanding yeah. of the game. I mean, to play at that level in those positions, you have to. I mean, number eight, number nine, they're going to be playing the ball a lot. Absolutely. Uh, and I agree. I think that's absolutely true. Nice.
Yes, um, I think they're two unbelievable refs. And I do think a big part of refs getting to the top is they have played before. Mm. So they just get the game. They understand where to be looking. And, how, and you said the analysis of the game. They just want to improve. I think they're quite humbled from coming to the rugby system as well. You always want to get better. Where some refs, I think, that haven't played the game, maybe they don't take criticism as well. What would you think, Owen? Yeah, I think so. But I, but I also think that you know some of the criticism now has just got out of hand. I mean, some of the social media stuff that they have to read about themselves, they get off social media. It is vile. Mm. Uh, and you think, well, that wouldn't affect me. And then you read somebody and say, well, God, I wish they said that about me. Yeah. And, and, there, and there is a culture. I mean, people aren't taking it up as readily. I mean, I know particularly in Munster now, there's a big shortage, shortage of refs. Yeah. There's some uh, and people have got to be shown that it, there is fun in this. Well, is there fun? And when I was there, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, from the top to the bottom. Uh, and I think that's gone now. And the cold culture of the game is in danger of changing. And I hate to emphasize it, a game that you see kids playing and mini rugby and it's wonderful, the bloody noses, the, the, the scraped knees and they're going home arm in arm and they've knocked hell out of each other or so they think. It's fantastic. And then somewhere far too soon, it starts to go wrong. Uh, and then the referees are involved and you see the parents on the sideline screaming blue murder at the ref. Uh, and then at the top level, the RFU wanted quite rightly to give Wayne Barnes a presentation at halftime of the England-South Africa match and they pulled it because they were worried about what the crowd reaction would be. Wow. Well, that's harsh because he obviously now has surpassed, uh, he's up there in Nigel Owens, isn't he? Mm -hmm. 101 test match, yeah. 101. Now, if if we lose that, if we have, then is the next thing you're going to have is trouble in the crowd? Mm. You know, are you going to have to separate the South African supporters from the English supporters from the Irish supporters? We've seen that happen in another sport. And we don't want to get down that. You know, we just don't want to get there. That's what makes rugby mm. sport different. Like we're even talking here about interpretations and laws and adaptation and being open to make changes. But there's certain grubby parts of the game now, including abuse to referees and to players. Like we brought it up. It wasn't it during the yeah. autumn series. Um, one of the referees um, receiving just a, a massive online abuse. And like, why would you do that? Yeah. Do you know, they're going out there like a player to do their best. And some of the games, especially like, I think it was Ireland, Australia, it was kind of, it was a real test match. So it was just two hard fought, you know, two teams going at it, fighting hard for every inch of space. And sometimes it's not always the spectacle we assume we're going to get as, you know, fans. And you have to take that because as players, we know your, your, your job is just to do your job and win and yeah. get over the line. Yeah. No more than the referee. Yeah, well, I mean, Barnes got death threats after uh, South Africa played France this year. Wow. Uh, and I mean, to see those on social media and your family being attacked on social media and you think, now, why am I doing this? Mm. I've done 101 matches. Maybe I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, he's a barrister. He's going to become a full time partner in a major law firm in London. The minute he I mean, he's a partner at the moment, but he'd be full time partner the minute he stops. I mean, that's huge money. So wh- he'd probably he'd probably be gone after the World Cup, even though he's still a very young man. I mean, he refereed France, New Zealand in that famous 2007 World Cup match where New Zealand uh, lost in Cardiff. And he, he was too young to be given that match. But I presume the selectors thought, well, New Zealand will win it. But of course, they hadn't looked e- even to their history books because mm-hmm. France have turned over New Zealand in the World Cup a lot, three times, I think. Um, and he got death threats after that. Uh, Helen Clark, I think, was the prime minister of New Zealand. She went on television to say, mm-hmm. come on. I was sitting in a, in a restaurant in Paris uh, the next night 
and this group of, South Af- of New Zealand farmers who'd flo- flown in as New Zealand were fl- flying out mm. uh, of Charles de Gaulle. They were flying in for their special, most expensive semi-final and final package. Well, what they didn't say about Wayne Barnes and, and uh, Graham Henry, it was unbelievable, vitriolic, uh, because of professionalism, and you have to win. Yeah, it's not very fair. And uh, I know we're, we're probably going on a bit longer here, but I have to ask you, what do you make of the way Razzie's been acting on social media and analysing refs' games and posting it for the world to see? Do you think it's fair or do you think it's out- outrageous? It's atrocious. Uh, it may be that deep down he knows psychologically that some referees, without meaning to, are going to look after South Africa a little bit better because they don't want to be the, at the brunt of this. They don't want to be attacked by him. It's atrocious because there is a system in place. He can do all that behind the scenes and he will get the answers he wants and the answers he needs. And he can make whatever corrections he needs to make to his team and perhaps the, um, the referee can make his own corrections to what he mm-hmm. needs to change. I mean, a lot of people give out, and I agree, that some referees need to be stood down for a while. Now, Matthew Raynal, after the summer, uh, got one match in um, the November series. It was Romania-Samoa, hardly a headliner. But he needed a rest, and he'd made a few mistakes. He'd stopped that kick to touch by Australia, which yep. was, like, unbelievably stupid, but probably just a brain freeze and suddenly, what have I just done, uh, moment. Um but he then came back because two people got injured and he became the super sub and he didn't do well. I mean, he produced 30 penalties in, uh, was it New Zealand, England? It was, yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a lot. I mean, ball and play time, 38 minutes, penalties, 30. Nice. Well, wow. It yeah. can't go on like that. No. And they've got to change how the referees are refereeing. I mean, you know, the, pen- the number of penalties, the number of advantages played, the hand goes out and you say, oh, God, that <laughs> offence did not matter. That's refreshing to hear, can I just say? Because sometimes I don't think people understand. They just think the referee's going in with this type, you know. Obviously, A, they're human. But B, it's nice to hear you, who is like the top guy for so long and has such impact on the game and refereeing and even refereeing this country, how you built it up. But like, it's refreshing to see that you as well have a love of the game that you want to see it flow. Yeah. Do you know that it's not always about you, that you're part of that overall unit and delivery of the game that we love? Well, if you take, you take just, just two instances, uh, you get continuous play and you get ruck after ruck after ruck. So say Munster are playing Toulouse and Toulouse have lots of possession. Ruck three, two centres go offside. Ruck seven, uh, and the referee plays advantage. Ruck seven, everybody's onside. They move the ball, they drop it and they go back to the previous penalty, which now has had nothing to do with play. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Take the advantage law. We all remember Stuart Hogg going over the Irish line, unopposed, drops the ball. And what does he get? He gets a penalty. Scotland get a penalty under the post for some spurious advantage that was being played to Scotland. He's over the line. He's, he's screwed up. And, sure, he gets re- and, he gets, and he gets rewarded. If they change the advantage law to go back to what it was, you take 10 penalties a match out of, the, out of rugby straight away. So why not do it? Yeah. They definitely need to start listening. I completely agree with you, Owen. And as you say, Lindsay, it's very refreshing because I agree. Refs need to kind of get out of the way and just let the game flow. In my opinion, I think some refs are trying to build a personal brand and using the platform of international stage to build a personal brand to benefit off the pitch. But I just think a ref's doing a good job if you don't notice them. Yeah, if you can. Now, in in fairness, some of them are afraid that if they don't pick up everything, 
they're going to be attacked by the coaches because if you pick that up, we wouldn't have been defending that kick five minutes later. I mean, that's absolute nonsense. <laughs> uh, but that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember one of our referees going out to referee uh, Leicester on Sunday in the Heineken Cup. And um, we got 63 queries. Like wow. minute after minute things he'd done wrong. I, and it was one of the few things that I refused to get. I said, I'm not dealing with that. Uh, I mean, that's utter, utter nonsense. He can't have been wrong 63 times. Whereas if you give me six things or if he's wrong about the mall all the time mm. and there's consistency, consistency of error, then you've got to deal with that. Yeah. But everybody's going to make a mistake. I mean, if Johnny Sexton knocks on and loses us the World Cup quarterfinal and the semi disappears because of that knock on, it'll be poor Johnny. We would never have got this far without him. Exactly. Referee does something equivalent Holy hell. He's the villain. Yeah. He's the villain. There's yeah. very little margin for error no, for referees. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You said it a while ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have survived a moment in the professional <laughs> game. Um, you, you said it a while ago, Lindsay. Refs are just human, so give them a break, lads. None of this crap on social media because um, they are human and they're doing a good job when, if, as much as they can do because yeah. they're under a lot of pressure. Absolutely. Um, so thanks very much for coming in. Mr. Owen Doyle, your book is called The Ref's Call. You can get it anywhere you get your books. And it'll be a great Christmas present for sporting people out there. Um, seems like there's going to be some great stories in there. So thanks very much for coming in, Owen. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed thanks it. For coming in. Yeah, you've been great. Lindsay, thank you very much as well. No, you too. And of course, a big thank you to Bank of Ireland, our supporters and proud sponsors of the Four Irish Provinces. We'll catch you next week, guys, for the European Cup. Cheers. Joe presents House of Rugby, together with Bank of Ireland, proud supporter of the Four Irish Provinces.